Misha here. If you enjoy our episodes on career pathways in healthcare or the STEM field at large, then I have the perfect podcast recommendation for you, Raising Health. Previously called BioEats World, Raising Health comes from leading venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, the same team behind the acclaimed A16Z podcast. Each episode, Raising Health dives deep into the heart of healthcare, biotech, and AI with venture capital investors and A16Z general partners. Along the way, they explore the real challenges and opportunities in health and biotech entrepreneurship. So whether you're interested in building a new digital healthcare company or your company is advancing a new novel medicine, Raising Health sheds light on some of the opportunities and obstacles along the founder's journey. Not to mention, you'll hear raw insights, actionable advice from notable guests like Omada CEO and co-founder Sean Duffy, an AI expert and in situ CEO Daphne Kohler. Don't miss out. Follow Raising Health on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and tell them I sent you. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hello, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and today we have another bonus episode for you while we're between series, this one on the theme of migration. Both of our storytellers today are sharing stories about the places and the new environments that life has taken them to and how the places they've been influenced who they are today. Our first story today is from Dai Shizuka. It was originally produced for our online live show on the theme of Brainy last October, and was recorded more recently in his home in Lincoln, Nebraska. So it was the mid-1980s uh, when my family moved from Tokyo to Houston. I was about seven at the time, which put me towards the tail end of what we call the sensitive period for language acquisition. It's when your brain is prime to, to absorb and learn languages. And so I got to learn English the magical way. Um, when I first walked into that first grade classroom, I could count. Uh, I knew some of my colors, uh, and that was pretty much it. And about a year later, I was speaking English like this um, as a native speaker. My two older brothers, five and six years older than me, um, had a, a little bit different relationship with English. Um, they both became you know, perfectly fluent uh, just as fast as I did, but they always retained a bit of an accent and they never got completely comfortable with you know, things like nuances and, and sarcasm. So I think those little differences uh, between us and our comfort level with language kind of nudged us to, to different lives. Uh, my brothers both elected to go back to Japan for college, and there they eventually got jobs, and they got married and started a family. I elected to stay in the U.S. for college and went on to grad school uh, and started family, settled down, and now I work here. Um, have a permanent job as a college professor uh, and an ornithologist in Nebraska. 
And so I spend my days you know, teaching and, and studying birds in English, my chosen language. And it's always been fascinating to me how these you know, few years uh, difference between my brothers and I and the vagaries of the developmental program of our brain can lead to a family straddling between two continents. And this is what they don't tell you about being bilingual. You know, it can, it can give you a ton of freedom and choices, but it can also set you adrift a little bit. Because I'm an ornithologist, I think about this every spring when the birds start singing. You see, decades of research has shown that birds learn their songs in a process much like how we learn our languages. And so, they have a sensitive period early in their lives, and they hear all these songs around them from their parents and their neighbors uh, when they're young. They memorize those, they practice them, and, uh, and they eventually uh, crystallize onto one song that they'll sing for the rest of their lives. And because of the similarities of these processes, um, Birds can also have dialects between different regions and different populations, much like we have in our languages as well. So I study this phenomenon in a bird called the golden crown sparrow. It's a little brown, really beautiful bird, uh, common across Western North America. And they have these really simple songs. Um, it's just three whistles. And because Bird watchers like to put mnemonics on, on bird songs. Um, they have one for golden crown sparrows that goes, Oh dear me. And that's a song that the birds sing in Alaska. And, and for me, it's a really beautiful song that reminds me of hiking up the mountains in Alaska and Canada and getting up to the, to the top of the mountain um, at the tree line. And that's where these birds live. And that's, that's what the song sounds like for me. But that, oh dear me, is one dialect. It's the Alaskan dialect of these birds. If you cross the border into Canada, there are a couple other dialects. One that goes, oh dear me, and oh dear me. And so in 2016, my students and I were, were studying these dialects of these birds in a population where different uh, birds with different dialects come together. Um, outside of this town called Whitehorse in the Yukon Territory in Canada. And so there you can walk around and hear birds singing different dialects. Okay. And so we were using these um, kind of ornithology techniques where we catch these birds in special nets called mist nets, and we would put color-coded bands on their legs like bracelets so we can tell them apart. And, and that way, you can walk around and you can tell which bird is singing what song. And that's kind of how we know that each bird can only sing one dialect, except this one bird that we met. This one bird um, can sing in two different dialects. And we, it took us a while to figure this out. Uh, but because we had these color-coded leg bands, um, on this on this guy he was green green metal green and we could follow him around and one day you know he was singing in this large territory that he had 
and we we were watching him sing, "Oh dear me, oh dear me," and then he flew off. But this time, uh, luckily, we could see where he was going. He 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 flew about a hundred meters away, perched on this other tree, and we followed him over there, and he started singing, "Oh dear me, oh dear me," a different dialect. And it blew my mind. It's such a simple thing, but I'd never heard a bilingual bird before. And so we really just followed him around for days. And I spent my days scribbling notes, um, counting how many times he sang one dialect versus another, and uh, pondering, you know, where did he grow up? And, and who did he learn a song from? And as I was scribbling in my notes, Every so often, my mind would drift off to my three-year-old son um, at the time. Now I have two kids. Uh, my son is now seven years old. I have a two-year-old daughter. And we raised them um, with my Korean-American wife in the middle of Nebraska. And the sensitive period for language acquisition is starting to close uh, for my son. Ever since I became a father... I'd often fall into this conversation. So is your son learning Japanese? Do you talk to him in Japanese? It's, re it's really great for him to be bilingual, you know. You don't have to tell me about the benefits of being bilingual. I mean, I've lived it. I'm thankful for my life um, every day. And it makes me feel guilty uh, and, and gives me a lot of mixed feelings. Because I don't teach him uh, Japanese as much as I could, you know, he knows the letters, he can count, he knows some of the colors. And this all gives me flashbacks to those magical years that I had when I first moved to the States. But also the struggles that I often forget. Um, and how I'm here and my brothers are back there. And where my family is now. So what's funny is that that bird never found a mate that year. He spent his days singing his extraordinary songs um, around his territory day after day. Um, but by the time everyone else had paired up and was raising family, he was still singing and, and wandering around. And later in the season, we'd see him on the other side of the mountain for a few days singing his songs, and eventually we didn't see him again. And I still wonder uh, where he went, but I uh, hold out hope that he was still just wandering around uh, looking for the place where he would fit in and settle down. That was Dai Shizuka. Dai is a first-generation immigrant from Japan who grew up in Tokyo, Houston, and Chicago. He's currently an assistant professor at the School of Biological Sciences at University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He's a husband and proud father of two kiddos. My life has been incredibly busy lately, but eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. If you're like me and on the go, it's great. 
And don't worry, you'll never be bored with Factor meals. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons with things like pancakes, smoothies, and more to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. And my favorite part, Factor meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed, which, as someone who is currently living without a fully functional kitchen, is ideal. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash storycollider50 and use code storycollider50 to get 50% off. That's code storycollider50 at factormeals.com slash storycollider50 to get 50% off. Our next story is from award-winning storyteller Nestor Gomez. It was recorded in his home in Chicago. My wife and I went to the hospital with a two-year-old daughter and a one-year-old son. There was nothing wrong with our daughter, besides the fact that at that age, she wanted to be in her mother's arms at all times, and she cried whenever my wife wasn't carrying her. Our son, in the other hand, was sick. He had asthma and he had already suffered several severe, almost fatal asthma attacks. We had to perform an RG test. The doctors informed me and my wife, we will expose your son to several substances to see what triggers his asthma. They needed one of us to come into the room with our son. And since I didn't want to deal with a crying daughter, I volunteered to go into the room while my wife stay outside with our daughter. You need to hold your son while we inject him, the doctor said, placing my son on the bed. I thought they were going to give him some sugar, candy, chocolate, substances to see what he was allergic to, and maybe I could get some treats too. I wasn't expecting this. Ouch, 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 came the scream as soon as the doctor got the needle close to my son. The doctor paused for a moment. Let's try this again, he said. No, 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 no! Another scream as the doctor tried injecting my son. Let's try it again, he repeated. <laughs> again, the scream. The doctor glared at me. Why are you screaming? He asked. Sorry, I responded. I'm afraid of needles. Go get your wife, he ordered. I got out of the room. My wife handed me our daughter, who started crying immediately. <coughs> my daughter cried outside the room in my arms. My son cried inside the room. <laughs> my babies! I cried, unable to keep my daughter from crying and thinking about all the pain our son was going through with all those needles all over his tiny body. My wife came out of the room five minutes later. She wasn't crying. She was mad. Are you guys all done? I asked her. No, responded the doctor who was walking right behind her. There is too much crying going on. We can't do our job like this. My wife took our daughter in her arms, 
my daughter stopped crying immediately. If you can't keep our daughter from crying, then you need to go into the room and help our son, my wife said, looking at me. Just thinking about the needles made me close my eyes in fear. I knew that fear. When I was a kid living in Guatemala, my family was extremely poor. But my mother always made sure that my siblings and I got all our vaccinations up to date. Since our family didn't have insurance because we were poor, we had to rely on a lady from the neighborhood who came to our house to give us the vaccinations. This was a lady with minimum medical training. The vaccinations were extremely painful. Whenever I saw the lady coming near the house, I would take off running, and my mother would have to run behind me until she could catch me. Then she would have to drag me back into the house, to her bedroom, put me down in the bed. Sometimes she would have to sit on top of me to get me to get my vaccination. One day, I heard my mother saying that the lady was coming in only a few minutes to give me a vaccination. So I decided that instead of running around like crazy, I was going to hide in the one place where they would not look for me, underneath my mother's bed. I hid so well that for a long time my mother couldn't find me. I'm sorry, the lady was telling my mom. It's getting late. I had to go. My mother started crying. I'm afraid my son is going to get sick. All kids get sick, the lady responded. But I lost two kids already, my mother said, crying. My baby daughter got sick in the middle of the night and died next to me in the bed. And then my other son died in my arms while I was carrying him to the hospital. I keep thinking that they could be alive if only back then I had money to pay for the vaccination. I knew that my siblings had died when I was young. But I never imagined that my mom had suffered so much and that she blamed herself for it. Don't cry, mom. I heard myself saying as I came out of my hiding spot. I tried to dry the tears from her eyes. It's okay to be afraid, my mother said. I'm afraid too. Just close your eyes. Don't look at the needle. Hey, the doctor was screaming at me. Bring, bring me back to the present. Are you going to faint? The doctor asked. No, I got this, I responded. I went into the room, took my son from the nurse, and I placed my son in the bed, and I held him while the doctor got the needles ready. I looked away from the needle so I wouldn't start freaking out. I bent down and instead looked into my kid's eyes. It's okay to be afraid. I told my son, I'm afraid too. Just close your eyes. Don't look at the needle. But I wasn't really talking to my son. He was one year old. He couldn't understand me. I was talking to myself because I'm still afraid of needles. That was Nestor Gomez. Nestor was born in Guatemala and came to Chicago undocumented in the mid-80s. Nestor told his first story at a Moss Story Slam to get over the stuttering that plagued his childhood. And since then, he's won 58 Moth Slams and three Grand Slams. 
Nestor also created, hosts, produces, and curates his own storytelling show and podcast called 80 Minutes Around the World, which features the stories of immigrants and refugees from different parts of the world, as well as their descendants and allies. And he's published a collection of stories detailing his experiences as a driver for ride-sharing, titled Your Driver Has Arrived. Highly recommend checking out both. The Story Quieter is so grateful for Di and Nestor's stories. Story Quieter is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Aaron Barker, with assistance from Story Collider's Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg and Senior Podcast Editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board, our Interim Executive Director Leslie Griesbach-Schultz, and our Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The first story in today's episode was produced by me, Aaron Barker, from one of our live online shows last October and was recorded by Senior Producer Paula Croxon. The second story was produced and recorded by me, Aaron Barker. Our theme music is by Ghost. Story Collider will be back in two weeks with a very special three-part miniseries called Two Sides, featuring stories about mental health told from different perspectives. This miniseries is produced and hosted by one of our super talented senior producers, Misha Gajewski, so you won't be hearing from me again on this podcast until May. I'll be leaving things in Misha's very capable hands. Until then, thank you all for listening. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.